Nevertheless, I grew up with a strong sense of spirituality that I think um, for me was very connected to music and to nature. I've always loved nature and I've always found my greatest sense of creativity in nature. I do a lot of composing um, while walking outside in the woods. That's American composer Sarah Kirkland Snyder, who is joined by the Phoenix Chorale and Christopher Gabitas today to talk about their upcoming performance, Dominion, and her Mass for the Endangered. Phoenix Chorale presents a multi-sensory experience with orchestra and visuals this March 24th and 25th. I'm Melissa Green. Welcome to another episode of Heart of the Arts. Phoenix Chorale and special guest composer Sarah Kirkland Snyder join us on KBOX Heart of the Arts. Good morning and thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Yeah, good morning. Good to see you all. Good morning. So for the first time, the Phoenix Chorale is presenting this concert featuring a multi-sensory experience with visuals juxtaposing the contemporary masterpiece of yours, Mass for the Endangered. Before we get into the upcoming performance and recording. This work was released in September of 2020, correct? Yes, correct. What were your initial initial feelings when it was released and how were listeners reacting to a work that's deeply personal or deeply personal to you? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, boy, it was actually quite complicated releasing at that time because of course, we were all still in the very much in the throes of the newness of COVID. And I wasn't quite sure how I should feel about, you know, on the one hand, I wanted to celebrate putting this recording out into the world. On the other hand, there was so much dire news and it almost felt wrong to celebrate. But Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the fact that COVID is itself what they call a zoonotic disease that has to do with, you know, being transferred by animals. It had to do with it had to do with environmental issues in the first place there. It gave it sort of an added resonance in a strange way. And so I had a lot of people um, responding to me along those lines saying that it was actually, they felt that it came along at a a meaningful time in their lives and and perhaps a time when people could, you know, have more attention to listen to music that was coming into the world, Um, certainly more attention for watching videos and that sort of thing, which was part of the reason why we decided to create the videos. But yeah, so it was it was a complicated mix of great joy and putting the music forward, but also um, a very serious, very serious moment in which to do so. Yeah. And a lot of reviews on your music and choral pieces are you, you mentioned the word strange times and they say that your work is very familiar and then it just kind of has these strange little nuances, strange in like the best sense possible. So it just seems <laughs> kind of serendipitous that it happened that way. So the mass is in Latin and reflects the origins of how like a mass is rooted in humanity's concern for itself, but expressed from uh, God in the image of man. And yours is about the concern for non-human life. Can you go more in depth on that for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Um, When I was first given this commission, it was from Trinity Wall Street, which is a wonderful um, establishment in New York City that commissions a lot of new music. And they they came to five composers and asked us to write masses on anything that we we wanted. Mm -hmm. They just stipulated that two of the movements be in Latin. But I spoke with my librettist collaborator, who I frequently work with, and we pretty much decided right away that we wanted to write on the idea of endangered animals and um, over-exploitation of the earth and climate change. And um, yeah, we thought it would be interesting to take the mass and use it as a a prism through which we could um, 
you know, eulogize worship and um, celebrate wildlife and biodiversity, but also embody a prayer to a higher power. Um, except in this case, instead of that higher power being God or Jesus, we envisioned it praying to mother nature, um, praying to her for forgiveness, for, for mercy, for intervention, if at all possible, perhaps in the form of, mm. you know, humans. I mean, it has to be us, right? Of course, making all the changes and we're not making the changes fast enough. So that's, that's really what the piece is about. It's a prayer for urgency and action and, uh, and change and hope, essentially. It's beautiful. Chris, what was your initial reaction or what was your initial feeling as you approached the text before recording it or rehearsing? Well, yeah, I mean, I was really lucky to be asked in 2019 to be one of the singers on the recording with Gabriel Crouch. And Gabriel Crouch was my direct predecessor in the King Singers. So I've known him for a while. And when when I moved on from being in the King Singers uh, at the start of 2019, uh, I kind of took a sabbatical year. I did I did bits of conducting, bits of singing, bits of teaching, and spent a lot more time at home, which was which was lovely. But as I was asked to be on this recording, um, I was able to study the scoring quite a lot of depth, mm-hmm. and that's when the text became apparent, you know, t- to me properly. Because you know, I don't think you can really sing words unless you get into the rhetoric, communicate the actual meaning of those words, not not just the the sounds and the syllables, but the true meaning behind them, connecting with what that meaning might be. And as Sarah said, after we recorded it, we were plunged into lockdown, and um, my family was living in a quite a remote farmhouse at the time during 2020. And as I listened to the edits and heard the recording as it came out, I think because we all had so much more time on our hands to listen to music and actually enjoy that process of of being alone and putting recordings on, which we hadn't done for ages because we were too busy. So we actually had had the chance to go into great depth of of learning the music, understanding it and really getting into oneness with the text. And I think it spoke to me at the time because... It was such a good juxtaposition between, you know, bits of the Greek text with the Kyrie, bits of the Latin text with the Gloria, and then the Nathaniel Bellows' wonderful English text, which complements so well this idea of looking for mercy and grace, uh, central to the Christian faith, but also looking for uh, a way of understanding our custodianship of the planet and the need that we have to look after what's happening around us so that we can safeguard it for those who come those who come after. And I think COVID was such, such a big eye-opener in terms of how we were looking after our things like our food chains and our supply chains mm-hmm. on the planet and how we were manufacturing things and how suddenly the fragile ecosystem within which we find ourselves could be completely struck down by by, by one virus that got out of control and perhaps we weren't being as mindful about our ecosystem and our planet as as we should be and this mass seemed to cut to the quick of that and I think it's what we needed to hear so I wanted to put it on in Phoenix. And I think this is the first performance west of the Mississippi, I think, I believe so. And I'm really excited about um, introducing it to a new audience uh, in in the southwest, where the ecology of Arizona is so dependent on a delicate balance between, you know, between water, between yeah. humankind and, and, and our natural resources. I think it's, it speaks very, very powerfully, particularly to our community in Arizona. Sarah, were you able to have back and forth conversations with the performers in anticipation of the recording? And were you able to share any personal insights? I'm curious if this mass and in your beliefs are maybe more spiritual, if it's reflective of your own personal beliefs, since it's such like a deeply personal piece. And if you were able to relay that to uh, the ensemble. 
Yeah, so we had a wonderful experience recording this music in London in 2019, um, August. And uh, we had three days in this beautiful old church um, in London. And the wonderful thing about that experience was that I did get to speak with members of the ensemble, both individually and, and together as a choir. Um, I got to talk about the piece and you know where the inspiration came from, how I felt about it, my relationship to the text. And so that really was wonderful. Plus Gabriel and I had the conductor and I had spoken at such great length about everything. So he had, he also was able to relay um, a lot of insight into the meaning of the text and the meaning of the music. And together it just, it felt like we were really able to um, to meet, you know, eye to eye and mind to mind with every member of the ensemble, which was, was really wonderful. Um, but in terms of my own spiritual background and religious background, I was not raised uh, particularly religiously. I, my parents took us to church for a couple of years in high school. I think they felt guilty that they hadn't really exposed us to any kind of religion because they had both been raised uh, going to church, but but it didn't really stick. And my parents were not particularly religious. Nevertheless, I grew up with a strong sense of spirituality that I think um, for me was very connected to music and to nature. Um, I have always spent, I've always loved nature and I've always found my greatest sense of creativity in nature. I do a lot of composing um, while walking outside in the woods. Mm. Um, that's sort of my preferred mode of composing. So um, so this piece really enabled me to bring those interests together in a way that I never really had. Um, when I was writing the piece, I, as I mentioned, I always take walks in the woods, but in this case, I, I took my computer outside. We have a, a creek out in the backyard with a bridge and I would sit there every day with my computer just writing outside so that I could really absorb a sense of the sounds of nature and the feeling of being outside the entire time that I was writing it. So, so yeah, for me, this piece was, I was just able to really bring together or, or find sort of live in the cathedral of my own spirituality, which is to say this house of music and nature combined. Um, so it, it felt like a very deeply personal and spiritual piece for me for that reason. And Chris, we've talked before about how religion plays such a big role in all of classical music and origins and choral music. Do you think that's there's a shift happening, especially after recording this mass in terms of inspirations for choral music? I think that's, that's an interesting point. I do think that choral music has such a debt of gratitude to give to organized religion, because mm -hmm. certainly when choral music started to be codified in the 16th, 15th and 16th centuries. It was all music was for the church. And the reason for that essentially was that the church wanted the same music to be sung at the same point in time during the same services so that the, the same praise was being offered in the same manner. A uniformity was very important to them. So, of course, codifying it was essential so that the, 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 um, the plain song could be performed in the same manner no matter where you were within the Christian kingdom. And so we have that debt of gratitude to give to organised religion for, 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 for the beginnings of our choral craft that we still enjoy today. But I do think there's more of a humanist influence, which is all pervading through music now. And I was I was at the ACDA convention, American Choral Dance Association, in Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago, and it was notable that a larger percentage than I'd noticed before of the choral music was thematically related to very much our, our zeitgeist at the moment, very much to do with uh, stories and uh, points of 
human interest, which were not necessarily sacred, but more about asserting personality and asserting equity and equality and making sure that um, the issues which we're talking about in our in our daily narratives now are being represented within our art form. And I think that's a very natural thing to do. I mean, for centuries, we've talked in music about hope and fear and love and war and drinking and faith and all of these things which are all pervading no matter what society we're in. But at the moment, it's it's much more about exploring how we can come together and find a voice for everyone and that there should be a sense of belonging no matter where we start our journey um, when we're listening to music we should feel as though we're in an inclusive space where all are welcome and all our feelings and our whatever we are on whatever spectrum we consider ourselves to be on intellectual or with regard to gender or anything else race um, we need to feel as though we're, we're allowed a sense of place and a sense of space and that's partly why we're taking this project with this very special mass into a secular environment, because we don't want anybody to feel that they can't come and enjoy this music and the message behind it, because they they feel they don't want to cross the threshold of a religious building. And so we're saying we're saying to the community in Phoenix, come one, come all. You know, if you like choral music, if you like any kind of music, and you you want to be involved in an immersive experience, then. We welcome you because this this is something that we feel will be so enriching. Um, the message is universal, the music is universal, and the space is universal. You said something about it being universal and, and giving a voice, especially over the past couple of years. I think it's more important to invite people in to feel like they're a part of something or that might bring them closer to understanding that here's a community that I really relate to because with things that are happening in our culture now, I think people lose touch when they feel like they don't know their own voice or where it fits in. I agree. And I think it's so easy for people to feel that uh, classical music and live performance such as that is, is very other and that they're not welcome because it might be seen as being exclusive or elite and something that they don't know about and because they don't know about it they don't they don't feel welcome and I, what we're trying to do is change the narrative and break down some silos particularly in phoenix but also across the community as a whole and say no no, no this this is for you if you think you might enjoy a different sort of experience then come and try this out and i think that the wonderful thing that gabriel crouch did with his group Galacantus, who made the recording, and also with Sarah, and then with Deborah Johnson, who is the lady at Candy Stations, who came up with these incredible graphics, yeah. and Nathaniel Bellows, a librettist. The whole team of people came together from very different perspectives and put together an immersive multimedia creation that can be turned into an event which speaks on so many different levels that mm -hmm. I think anybody would find a takeaway which resonated with them. So it's not the same as sitting on a hard chair in a cold building, looking up at a crucifix and thinking, I don't understand this text and I feel as though I shouldn't be here. It's about walking into a museum and experiencing completely holistically embracing art using sight and sound. And, you know, you can almost taste and see the colours in the visuals and in the music. It's so multisensory. And I think it's a, it's, it's a new, um, unique and powerful offering within within the Arizona music scene as a whole. I think it's an extraordinary experience. We're so grateful to our supporters for allowing us and to our board for allowing us to go ahead with it. And we, we think it's a it's a really groundbreaking moment within the art scene in the city. And so we, we just want as many people to experience it as possible. 
Yes. And uh, talk about the artwork of Deborah Johnson. This is being projected. I've, I've seen some of her work that look like they're nebulas and then how it kind of ref- that really out there world reflects, you know, our inner world and what our cells and what our makeup looks like. Yeah, boy, Deborah is she is a force of nature. Um, she's got so many wonderful ideas that are connected um interconnected through all these different levels. Uh, you know, initially we talked about creating this cathedral of the cosmos, which is, mm. she envisioned all the endangered animals going up to heaven and, and living, you know, in the afterlife and this cathedral in the sky. And so that, that was an inspiration, but then she also was interested in sacred geometry and in the primordial soup and where, you know, initial cells came from. And she wanted to um, create all these 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 things in this this intricate way, this intricate narrative that um, that would sort of point in different directions at different times, while always being um, very visually stimulating and evocative. And um, yes, yeah, so she mm-hmm. she just she's wildly creative. And part of the reason why she calls herself Candy Stations is she will take all kinds of different organic matter to get inspired and create. Her art, for instance, um, with the first video that, or one of the first videos, Sanctus Benedictus, she took the the dye from Skittles candy and swirled that into cream and then took those images and worked with CGI and turned them into this kaleidoscopic phantasmagoria. I mean, it's amazing to me, but she often starts with these very organic materials and then evolves them in this very complex way with her computer um, and... Yeah, I mean she's she's just spectacular. I'd come to to know her work through several other um videos by other composers that she'd worked with and I'd just always really admired her 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 work and I'm so thrilled that she she could do this cuz I think she brought so much to the project. Yeah, didn't you guys work together on uh Hild- your work for by piece for Hildegard von Bingen? Is that a Right, yeah, we're we're actually just starting that now. Okay. But um that's right. We're working on that together and we're also working on an orchestra piece for uh the Rochester Philharmonic about the history of photography for the George Kodak Institute um in Rochester. So, yeah, we're involved in a few different projects together. And Chris, I know you guys have um these open rehearsals and there's one coming up this Friday on the 17th. How does has the choir been rehearsing with these images? Is that taking space in the in the rehearsal space right now? No, it hasn't. That's a that's <laughs> a really interesting point. What what we have done is shared the YouTube videos, which mm-hmm. of course any of your listeners could access as well, which mm-hmm. uh which allow you to listen to the, the Gallicantus recording, but with the images playing at the same time. And we've encouraged our singers to do that. And I I know many of them, if not all of them have done so, but they will experience for the first time, the true splendor of the experience, the immersive experience when we're in the art museum for the dress rehearsal, which Mm. is going to be a week on Thursday, uh, which is the the night before the the opening performance. And that's that's when it will all come together. And I think before that, in our rehearsals before that point, we need to focus very much on making sure that our part in that, the music is, is as good as it can possibly be. And in fact, even when we were recording it, we didn't we didn't have the benefit of the visuals there in in the church in London. Um, but it's something which is it's almost completed the picture because the, Nathaniel Bellow's text is is so evocative and so wonderful. But I, I'm glad Sarah used the word organic to describe Deborah's 
images because that's exactly how I felt about them. It almost seemed to, it, it gave a sort of a, a pictorial equivalence to the voice that Nathaniel gave to, the, to, to, to these animals and to, to the nature and the ecology of our planet um, so that you could see it in different different dimensions. And the holistic experience of having both of them was just much more powerful, really, really wonderful experience. And I think, I think the architectural basis, the sort of organic evolutionary or architectural basis of, of what Deborah's done to translate the the message of the text into these images is really quite profound. Uh, and I think it adds such a, an amazing dimension for the audience to enjoy. Yeah. And what about Dixit Dominus by Handel? Chris, was that the yeah. piece that you chose for um, the program as well? And do you have images to go along with that work we do we've commissioned a new york-based um artist called jacob mccoy mm -hmm. who is uh, a friend and a close collaborative colleague of nicole nicole belmont who's our chief executive at phoenix corral and i've been working with jacob for the last few weeks and months uh we're not intending really to rival what deborah has done with her candy stations project what we're trying to do really is just is just to add the other side of the looking glass to that i suppose with very simple visuals but which speak to the more uh worldly and terrifying human-based power that we can exert on the planet so the, the the title of the whole project is dominion and of course it's got two different meanings we, it can mean dominion as in the place our domain the place where we inhabit which is the planet and that's where sarah's piece takes its takes its place for the second half but for the first half the idea of dominion is is as in dominate and the psalm setting dictate dominus is a very very powerful terrifying psalm the text for which was was read at all the hebrew kings coronations back in the times of the old testament we believe and it speaks very much about a transfer of power from god from heavenly power onto the newly crowned hebrew king that they would then exert over their enemies and over their people and so this is mankind trying to have the power of God over the planet and over our fellow man. And that's a massive contrast to what we have in the second half, which is this reminder that actually we we oughtn't to exert the power that we're capable of exerting because the delicate balance of nature is being and continues to be destroyed by by this idea of domination that that, that, that humankind has over the planet. And um, But I wanted to go for shock and awe in the first half and then for... Mm -hmm you know, gentle exhortation in the second. And I, I hope that the juxtaposition will work, will, will work well. But I, I'm really delighted with the images we have for that first half and, the, and for the handle. Yeah. I'm sure it will. It sounds like a lovely balance of these two choral masterpieces. And Sarah, I'm curious, since your name in choral music has been bouncing around the classical contemporary music world for some time, who are some of your biggest choral influences? Yeah, actually, I would say the biggest influence on my choral writing is Mozart. Um, mm. I, I sang uh, quite a, I mean, I sang the Requiem several times, and that piece is just so deeply etched in my my soul that I, I think there's a lot of that influence there. Um, I sang some early music, you know, Bird and um, and Monteverdi, um, Palestrina, uh, but there was also Foray and, you know, Brahms and Verdi. And and so a lot of classical influence, of course, a lot of choral singing, but I, I also think there's some non-classical influence in there as well. Um, my parents only played non-classical music growing up at home. So the records they played were, you know, the Beatles and Joni Mitchell and Fleetwood Mac. And then as I got older, I always loved um, a lot of pop and, uh, folk and alternative music and 
So there's some, you know, there's a Sufjan Stevens, I think is, I can hear some of his influence from time to time in some of the vocal writing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, for me, it's, I don't know, for better or for worse, I feel like my musical DNA is is, is sort of non-classical and classical intertwined. And I, I try to allow myself to just write freely from that perspective and not worry about whether it's classical or not. So I, it's all kind of ground up into a fine powder, my, my influences. Um, and I think all of that is, is um, perceivable, I, I hope, in the music. Yeah, it's always good, especially for modern composers to be so well-versed and, and well-rounded. My wrap-up question is just what is your ideal space to be performing classical music? I know a lot of people are changing the way we absorb it, whether it be the space we're in, whether we're able to move freely, whether you can stop in the middle of a performance and talk to the audience about it. So what is your ideal space for audiences, listeners, new listeners to take in music like this? This being the first foray that we've done for this sort of mixed media experience, immersive experience, we you know we're hoping it's very successful so that we can plan to do more. But undeniably, it's it's much more costly than our usual church-based mm. performances. So sure. you know that, that that's why we're hoping for the audience support that um, that we think the project merits. The audience will be seated, but they'll be seated in the in the main sort of turbine hall, if you like, of the art museum. I'm saying turbine hall because that's that's the only space that I can think of in London, which is comparable in the in the Tate Modern Museum by, by the Thames. There's a massive hall and they have installations in there. And this is more like an installation than a concert for me. Mm. So they will be seated, but they'll be seated at interesting angles and able to look at the visuals uh, alongside them and the performers in front of them. And we're going to try to use the space in an interesting manner, as interesting as we possibly can. We also have, we, we have the great joy of uh, collaborating with some students from ASU for the Saturday performance in their wonderful choral director, Dr. Jason Saplan, um, who's from Hawaii uh, originally, and they will be bringing some of the chamber choir students and the idea is that there's a more immersive installation where the audience walks through a tunnel of those chamber singers from ASU singing um, some rounds and singing some uh, folk material before the concert, and they will do a short set before we, before we begin. Um, just to add another element to what we're trying to do collaboratively with, with different institutions across the valley. Um, I don't think there are going to be traditional announcements for this. We don't want it to feel very formal. We want the audience to come in and sit down and really enjoy the experience rather than feeling like they're attending a very formal concert performance. And there will be, you know, there'll be a bar and there'll be various receptions and there'll be mingle areas so that the performers and the audience can join together to discuss what they're about to hear and what they've just heard and what they've just experienced. And hopefully it can be a dialogue between performer and audience members that will stimulate the potential for regular projects like this. The Chorale is certainly hoping that this will uh, have a long tail and there will be a legacy that we can build upon and have more performances in secular spaces and have more juxtaposition of traditional, ancient and modern works. Um, and to that end, we also have a talk back after Friday's performance following the concert on Friday. There's going to be a talk back with Sarah and with Deborah Johnson from Candy Stations and with myself. So the audience members can come and, you know, after the experience, they can speak to us about how they felt, ask us any questions they may have. 
and perhaps give us some suggestions as to what they might like to see next. And what about you, Sarah? Is uh, Do you kind of envision this kind of setting and what else for um, future performances of your pieces? Oh, wow. Well, I feel like this setting or this this plan for the concert is really my ideal um mm. doing it in a, a non-secular space i mean i love hearing this music in a, a church and the acoustically don't get me wrong but you know philosophically i really love the idea of opening this up and having it in a, a non-secular space for all the reasons that christopher mentioned um making it really feel accessible and non-secular um and making it feel like something that that anyone with any kind of background can find some enjoyment in and relate to um that's why i created the music that's what all of my music is about is i'm i'm very interested in communicating with the average person with anyone and everyone um you know i don't even think of the music that i write as classical per se i just think of it as music i think perhaps because of the background that i just mentioned i yeah. always try to write from a space of telling a story and sharing a narrative and wanting to communicate emotionally with the audience. So so my ideal listening space is, is one that's like this, where it's very welcoming and accessible to anyone and where um, there are visuals that can engage if people are more auditory, I mean, more visual uh, or prefer their their you know, music to be accompanied by some kind of a visual. I, I love that. And yeah, I'm just, ex I'm extremely excited about this. I think this is going to be one of the most memorable performances of the piece to date. It sounds like a very favorable space and experience, and I'm excited for our listeners and audiences to hear all about it. Thank you both for taking the time for Heart of the Arts today, and we'll see you next weekend in Phoenix. Wonderful. Looking forward to seeing you too, and thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That's American composer Sarah Kirkland Snyder joined by the artistic director of Phoenix Chorale, Christopher Gabitas. They'll be performing her Mass for the Endangered along with Dixit Dominus by George Friedrich Handel, a multi-sensory event happening March 24th and 25th at the Phoenix Art Museum. For tickets and more information, head to phoenixchorale.org. For KBOX Heart of the Arts, I'm Melissa Green.